This covenant is revealed in the gospel. It was revealed first of all to Adam in the promise of salvation through the seed of the woman. After that it was revealed step by step. And that's the portion we're actually looking at. It was revealed step by step until the full revelation of it was completed in the New Testament. This covenant is based on the eternal covenant transaction between the Father and the Son concerning the redemption of the elect. Only through the grace of this covenant have those saved from among the descendants of fallen Adam obtained life and blessed immortality. Humanity is now utterly incapable of being accepted by God on the same terms on which Adam was accepted in his state of innocence. And last week we started covering uh, the Mosaic Covenant. This idea of step by step or the original language was um, by farther or further steps. Um, that, that it was revealed until the final or full revelation in the new covenant. So we're at the Mosaic Covenant, and uh, we were looking at the the uh, various components of that specific covenant. And so we'll jump back in right where we left off last week. <clears throat> so what we uh, what we were going to go into next was the federal head of the covenant. Um, We've seen as we've gone along, that's a pretty important uh, aspect of covenants is the federal head because um, your standing in the covenant is based on your relation to the covenant head. Um, if you are, uh, to use the Abrahamic covenant language, if you are severed from the uh, head of the covenant, you are in no way going to receive the benefits of the covenant. <clears throat> so interestingly... The Mosaic Covenant does not give us a covenant head within itself. As perplexing as that may be. However, it does lay the foundation for a covenant head to be added later. So it had the seeds of a covenant head, and we'll see that that plays into the revealed by further steps. Um, but to see this, let's turn to Deuteronomy 17. <laughs> Looking at verses 14 through 20. So at this time, uh, Israel has, um, has not actually taken the promised land yet. They're still in the wilderness. They're wandering. They are uh, getting ready to go conquer the promised land. At this point... There is no, uh, there is no king in Israel. Um, Moses, yes, led the people, but he was not a king. Um, but the law that was given through Moses anticipated there would be a king. So uh, we turn to the passage now. It starts in verse fourteen. It says, "When you come to the land that." The Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me, 
like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. So it has to be somebody who is covenantally related to Abraham. Okay? Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests and it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. So this is setting the framework for the covenant head to be the king. Um, I've said this in recent past teaching. As goes the king, so goes the kingdom. Why? Because he's the head of the kingdom. Um, <clears throat> another thing to notice here, uh, and this is kind of an aside, I guess, but I still think it's worth mentioning. <clears throat> this was a different kind of king. The kings of the nations made the laws, but not in Israel. The king was responsible to follow God's law. Uh, we see right here that he actually is to write down a copy of the law himself, and then the Levitical priest is supposed to review the copy that he wrote down and go, okay, that's approved, that's right, you wrote it down right, or I would assume it doesn't explicitly say that, but if not, well, write it again, you wrote it wrong. Um, and he is supposed to consider this, and he is supposed to rule according to this law. So the king was not the lawgiver. The king was to lead the people in following God's law. Um, so this was very different from the typical kings, the kings of the nations. All right. Um, so the idea, again, is just that the king would be the covenant head eventually. So this covenant, in more ways than one, was always pointing forward. Um, and we'll return to this idea when we get to the next covenant, the next farther step in the Davidic covenant. All right, the, uh, the circumstances of the covenant. True to the form of the ancient suzerain treaties of the region, the covenant preface gives us the circumstances of this covenant. So the way that the Middle East treaties would be laid out uh, it would begin by giving you basically the history. This is why we're going to make this covenant. And then it would get into the terms of the covenant. So this one's actually laid out like that. And the terms are this. In Exodus 22, it says, I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That's the context. I'm your God. I have freed you from slavery, therefore, do this. So the context is that the promised slavery and deliverance of Abraham's physical seed made in Genesis 15 
is fulfilled in this covenant. And in case you don't remember, God actually told Abraham that this is what would happen. That his descendants would be in bondage. He even told them 430 years. So even down to the year. And then he promised he would bring them out and they would possess the land. That's what this covenant is about. Um, the sacraments of the covenant. Um, particularly these would be circumcision and Passover. Um, this part actually gets kind of interesting, or I think it's interesting. Um, Reformed paedo-baptists make a mistake that we must be careful to avoid here. Louis Burkhoff, who was a paedo-baptist, um, I think very highly of Louis Burkhoff, but he was a paedo-baptist and a very good uh, representative of that position, but nevertheless, we've gone over it already. Uh, not biblical, not right. But he states, during the old dispensation, there were two sacraments, namely circumcision and Passover. As belonging to the Old Testament dispensation, circumcision was a bloody sacrifice symbolizing the excision of the guilt and pollution of sin and obliging the people to let the principle of the grace of God penetrate their entire life. The Passover was also a bloody sacrament. The Israelites escaped the doom of the Egyptians by substituting a sacrifice, which was a type of Christ. The saved family ate the lamb that was slain symbolizing the appropriating act of faith, very much as the eating of the bread and the Lord's Supper. And then in describing the New Covenant sacraments, again, Burkhoff states, the Church of the New Testament also has two sacraments, namely baptism and the Lord's Supper. In harmony with the New Dispensation as a whole, they are unbloody sacraments. However, they symbolize the same spiritual blessings that were symbolized by circumcision and Passover in the old dispensation. See the nice logical flow there? We have to be careful. From here, the Reformed Pedo-Baptist concludes that circumcision replaces baptism and the Lord's Supper replaces Passover. But the unbloody New Testament sacraments represent the same things as the bloody Old Testament sacraments. Now here's the problem with this line of thinking. What does the New Testament say about the Old Covenant sacraments and their fulfillment in the New Covenant? That is a logical argument, and it's really tempting to follow it, the, the one that I just presented from Burkhoff. But is it consistent with Scripture? So first, let's look at circumcision, specifically. Uh, first, let's go to Romans chapter 2. Verses 28 and 29. So Romans 2, verses 28 and 29. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, 
And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is from man, but from God. So what we're seeing there, the fulfillment of circumcision, physical circumcision, is spiritual circumcision, circumcision of the heart. Um, Philippians chapter 3. Let's look at the next passage, Philippians chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 2 and 3 particularly. I may keep reading a little bit past that. I don't know. Let's see. Um, Of course, the context is still talking about... um, Well, here he's talking about Judaizers. Um, So he says, Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who, who mutilate the flesh. The reference there is... Uh, those who say you must have physical circumcision to be in Christ. So that's what he's talking about, mutilating the flesh. He says, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. And then he goes on to give all of his accolades for if Righteousness is by law keeping, then certainly I would have righteousness by law keeping. But then he says, I do not have my own righteousness. Um, he says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Um, and then that he uh, has a righteousness from God that depends on faith. So there, we're called the circumcision. And then the uh, passage that I think even though I think it's wrong, I think it might be the best argument for uh, circumcision turns into baptism. Colossians 2. And this is uh, verses 11 through 15. Colossians 2, verses 11 through 15. All right, it says, In him, talking about Christ, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Okay, so there I think we have clear teaching. Circumcision in the New Covenant is the circumcision of Christ. It's made without hands. It's the circumcision of the heart. It's the putting off of the body of flesh. But then he goes on. Having been buried with him in baptism. So the pedo-baptist goes, see there's circumcision and then it's being equated with baptism. But is that really is that right? Because it's saying you've been circumcised and now, is this the baptism, that physical baptism, or are we talking about spiritual baptism here? Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, 
God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So we're talking about spiritual concepts here. The circumcision that we have is the circumcision of Christ from the heart. The baptism being referenced here is spiritual baptism in which we die with Christ and we're raised with Christ. Okay? Um, so, far from this actually making the case that uh, circumcision turns into baptism, uh, I think it's quite the contrary. It shows that circumcision has an actual fulfillment that's not a physical thing. It's a spiritual fulfillment. Alright, before I move on to uh, the next sacrament, I am going to pause for a moment because I've gone over a good bit of stuff. Anybody got any uh, comments or questions or rebuttals or anything like that on any of this? Not necessarily circumcision, but if there was something before that. Okay. Alright, so then the next sacrament in the Old Covenant, Passover. Um, Now to look at this, let's start in Luke chapter 22. Um, And we're going to look at verses 7 through 20. And while you're flipping over there, I am going to make this comment. We must realize and admit there is a connection here. I don't know that it's necessarily the one that Peter Baptists see, but it definitely is a connection. The Lord's Supper was instituted at the final Passover that was kept by Christ and the apostles before Christ would accomplish that which it pointed to. This Passover pointed to Christ. Passover pointed back to salvation from physical death and the coming of the destroyer in Egypt and freedom from the tyranny of the Pharaoh. Freedom from death, freedom from slavery. It pointed forward to salvation from eternal death by the true Lamb of God and the freedom He brings from the tyranny of sin. Similarly, the Lord's Supper points back to the sacrifice of the Lamb of God and the freedom He brings from the tyranny of sin and death. Scripture says, uh, in it we declare the Lord's death until He comes. However... The relationship of these two sacraments alone does not necessitate that one replaces the other. Just because one grows out of the other does not mean it replaces it. So, let's uh, let's look first in this passage where it actually is instituted. So Luke 22, verses 7 through 20. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare uh, prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared for the Passover. 
And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it, uh, until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table, for the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another which of them it could be who was going to do this. So they're eating the Passover. Passover that's pointing forward to Christ. And in the midst of this, he institutes the Lord's Supper. At this moment, pointing forward, but not for long. Because the reality that it uh, pictures was about to happen. And now we declare his death until he comes. It points back. Alright. The, uh, the next passage, John 1. <clears throat> Just one verse here. Verse 29. John chapter 1, verse 29. The next day he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. A direct reference to Passover. Passover Lamb. Um, the next verse, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. In verse 7. Alright, it says, Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. That's as explicit as it gets right there. But one more passage. Um, 1 Peter chapter 1. And this will be uh, verses 15 through 21. So 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 15 through 21. Actually, I'm going to back up to verse 14 because 15 is picking up in the middle of a sentence. All right, it says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. 
And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. And then in Revelation, I did not include the reference in my notes, but it's somewhere in Revelation, Jesus is referred to as the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. All right, so... Do I? No. Did you did you remember the reference? Thirteen. Well, let's see if we can look it up real quick. Then. Yep, you're right. Verse eight. All who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the uh, book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Yeah, it is. All right. Um, so, uh, yes, we may. The point is, yes, we may see a connection of the sacraments, but baptism does not replace circ- circumcision, and the Lord's Supper does not replace Passover. These things have uh, their fulfillment in Christ, and the new covenant. Um, sacraments are pointing us back to Christ. Alright. Anything <coughs> on that before we move on to this next part? Alright. Say that it doesn't say that again, it doesn't continue you mean as in what I mean it is doesn't replace circumcision, yes. Baptism does not replace circumcision and the Lord's Supper does not replace uh, Passover. Circumcision and Passover find their fulfillment in Christ. And therefore, are no longer continued. Not in a physical sense. We um, We keep the ceremonial aspects of the law in that we participate in the substance that was shadowed by those things. So we don't do the outward physical, like we don't have to do circumcision for covenant membership. We don't have to keep like the physical Passover because we participate in what those pointed towards. We have the circumcision of Christ. Christ is our Passover lamb. So it's in that sense that we keep it. And it's in that sense that it's ongoing. Does that make sense? Yeah. All right. All right. Um, so this next part, what is the purpose of this covenant? We've gone over the elements of the covenant. What's the purpose of the covenant? Well, I think there are two primary purposes for this covenant. Um, number one, it was designed to govern national Israel, which might seem like a duh. I mean, we're giving a law to a nation here, of course. Um, Sam Renahan points out five different ways that it governed ancient Israel as a nation. Number one, it governed the people as a whole. 
And it's under this heading that Renahan shows the threefold distinction of the law, which we talked about Sunday. Uh, among the laws, I'm quoting him now, among the laws by which God governed Israel, there are two basic kinds. Israel was governed by moral laws and by positive laws. Um, and that's the end of that quote. Here I think it would be good to clarify what does that mean? Moral law and positive law. What is that? The moral law is God's eternal law that is applicable to all people at all times. So whether you're Adam or you're me sitting at this table or even if you're Christ, as in terms of his humanity, the moral law is binding on us at all times because this is a revelation of God's character. And so by violating the moral law, we are going against God's character. We are um, directly, I mean, I don't know if that's the right way to word that. Hold on, let me be careful. Because um, we're directly sinning against him regardless if, if we violate the law. But we're, we're hitting at more of the heart of who God is. Maybe that's the best way for me to say that. The moral law is what undergirds every other aspect of the law. The other two are going to come back to this part. Um, kind of give you an idea of this. Um, oh yeah, by the way, the moral law is what's revealed in the Ten Commandments, or summarized in the Ten Commandments. Um, just kind of give you an idea of this. Positive law consists of positive commands that are in addition to the moral law. For example, and I'm going to bring back something we've already gone over. Adam was given an additional command to abstain from eating of the tree of good of the knowledge of good and evil. Eating from the tree in and of itself would not have been a sin. Had God never gave that command, eating from the tree would have been perfectly fine. But God did give that positive command. Eating from the tree is forbidden. So it's only when God gave the command that this was added and became sin to them. So don't eat from the tree is not part of the moral law. That's positive law. Um, whereas it is sinful in itself to commit idolatry or to commit murder, which are aspects of the moral law, positive law has to have this positive command attached to it. Renahan continues... Quote, Israel's positive laws are often split up into two groups, the civil law and the ceremonial law. End quote. So we see that all aspects of Israelite society and life were governed by the Mosaic Covenant because, of course, morality is going to be governed, as always, by God, and then you get civil laws. So this is what the state, if you want to put it that way, uh, is responsible for enforcing. And then you have ceremonial laws, which is what... The church, if you want to say it that way, is supposed to to do. Now, uh, the second way that it governed ancient Israel was by the priesthood. Um, it is under this heading that we see what is known as the regulative principle of worship coming to the forefront. God laid down specific instructions for how the priesthood was supposed to look and function. We have a biblical example of two priests taking matters into their own hands instead of following the instructions given by God. These were Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron. And I actually do want to read that passage, Leviticus 10. 
verses 1 through 3. Um, so God has given specific instructions for how the priesthood is supposed to function. Alright? And then we read this. Leviticus 10, verses 1 through 3. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized or strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said among those who are near me. I will be sanctified, and before all the people I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. You think God takes his worship seriously? We don't get to become creative in how we worship. Um... God has laid down specific instructions for how He is to be worshipped. It is His worship directed to Him. He has every right to do that. And so we see that coming to the forefront here um, in the priesthood. Now, why was this such a big deal? Why would God care about this so much that these two priests who offered strange fire are consumed by fire from heaven? Why would God care about that so much? Well, for that, let's look at Hebrews 8. Verses 1 through 6. <clears throat> Hebrews 8, verses 1 through 6. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest. Talk about Jesus. One who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. The point there is that these were a shadow, a copy of the heavenly things. And so to take matters into your own hands and offer your own worship is not a copy of the heavenly things, but rather you are messing up the picture that God is painting. <coughs> so, and, and thereby also you are not communicating what God wants to communicate by those things. Because remember, these things all point forward to Christ, right? But if we take it into our own hands, suddenly it doesn't anymore. Alright, the, uh, the third way in which it governed ancient Israel is that it governed their king. And we've already read that relevant passage in Deuteronomy 17, and I'm not going to go back and read it again. However, I think there is one point worth mentioning here. And again, I'm quoting Renahan. 
He states, the king is to lead the people in keeping the law. This is a strong contrast between ancient kings and Israel's kings. In other nations, the king creates the law. The king is the law. In Israel, the king is created by the law, because there's that provision in Deuteronomy. And the king must keep the law. God is king in Israel, and his law controls the kingship. All right, fourthly, uh, the covenant, the Mosaic covenant, governed the prophets. Um, We turn to Deuteronomy 13 for this one. And this is verses 1 through 5. It's Deuteronomy 13, verses 1 through 5. says, if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us go after other gods which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear Him and keep His commandments and obey His voice and you shall serve Him and hold fast to Him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. So it wasn't just a matter of the prophet has to be right in what he predicts. There's passages that address that as well. If he gets it wrong once, he's a false prophet. But not only does he have to get his predictions correct, his predictions have to be in accordance with God's law. If in any way he is trying to lead the people astray from the commandments of the Lord, even if he's right in what he predicts and prophesies, he is to be put to death. All right. Uh, finally, the uh, the covenant governed the covenant blessings and curses. Um, we covered that last week, so again, I'm not going to flip to the passage. I'll just refer you back to last week. Um, but we did see that there was blessing for covenant keeping, and there was curses for breaking the covenant. Um, and thereby, we saw that it is a covenant of works, um, not works for salvation, eternal life, but rather a national covenant for national blessing. Alright. So that was the first purpose that the covenant serves. It's to govern the people. The second purpose of the covenant is what we began with uh, last week in Galatians 3. It served as a guardian or a tutor or a schoolmaster, whatever your translation may say, until the new covenant substance of the old covenant shadows had come. Renahan sums this up well. The purpose of the Mosaic covenant was to teach Israel and all 
of this about true forgiveness to be found in a heavenly sacrifice administered by a heavenly high priest in a heavenly temple. It points us to Jesus. It pointed those under it to Jesus. Any uh, discussion on any of that? Um, well, I think that pretty well covers it, so we will close with this one final thought from Pascal Denault, which brings us back to where we began last week. He says this, Not only was the Old Covenant not against the promises of God, but it was given specifically for the accomplishment of these promises. In other words, what he's trying to say there is the law is not against the gospel. The law is designed to point us to the gospel. Um, He says, without being itself a covenant of grace, the old covenant was given because because of the covenant of grace and with a view to its accomplishment. The law given by Moses was a grace to lead to the grace accomplished by Jesus Christ. So, is the law contrary to grace? No, not if we use it lawfully. If we use it for the, in the way that God intended, it's always going to point us to Jesus. It's not going to be contrary to Him and, oh, we're going to keep the law as a covenant of works and we don't need Christ. No, absolutely not. Um, that use of the law is not itself lawful. That is against the law's purpose. So, that's all I got. Anything, any following thoughts or anything before we close? Alright, if not, then let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for the opportunity to come together and to fellowship and to... Uh, study your word through our confession and, and even maybe going beyond our confession but still being driven back to scripture. We thank you for our time together tonight. Um, I pray that you would help us to continue to think on these things and to learn from these things and to um, get a better grasp um, more and more um, on the covenantal structure of the Bible and thus of human history. Um, Most of all, help us to see how all of this um, from beginning to end points to Jesus and how it should give us confidence and a greater faith in Him. Because all of the promises that are made in the Old Covenant find their yes and their amen in Him. And so I pray that you would help us to have that kind of confidence. And I pray also that you would motivate us because we're saved, because we are regenerate, that you would help us to keep your law of love and that you would help us as we attempt to disciple the nations in obedience to our Lord. And I pray that they would be. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.